Thank you for joining us for this edition of Facilitating the Mission. You're in for a real treat. Today's show is part two of our interview with author, missionary, and theologian Jackson Wu. Make sure you check the podcast landing page for a link to part one and links to other resources mentioned. It's funny because uh, years ago I was at a conference where there were students from two different well-known reformed seminaries from different traditions. So it was students from Westminster uh, seminary and then students from the master's college. <laughs> and, and it was a, it was sort of a gathering about eschatology and, you know, they have different understandings of how things are going to unfold in the end. But one of the most amazing things that I heard there was the, when it was started by the one, the Dean of, of the seminary basically used the example of, of Jesus, you know, um, being tempted by Satan. And the, the, the Jesus technique was not when Satan misquoted a scripture or misapplied a scripture. Jesus didn't take that scripture and dismantle it, that scripture itself, to prove him wrong. What he did is he brought in a different scripture that actually shed new light on the scripture that Satan was using and brought the balance. And, and so it was the both-and approach rather than in either, this is the only way this can be interpreted, and this is the only right way this can be interpreted. Well, hey, there's another scripture that throws a different light onto that, and maybe there's somewhere in the middle uh, where is where the thing is actually at. Yeah, and it may not be equal in the middle. Maybe it is more towards your side, you know. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah. I, I think that that sort of... Uh, seeking of the middle way is something that we really need to learn in our theological method. Um, not, not that doesn't mean that the other side's always right, but it just, just means that we need to have the humility to be uh, able to to listen. Because I feel like increasingly too much theology is done out of fear. People say, "Well, what might this lead to?" And so they reject an entire conversation or stream of thought because somebody might misuse it. Now, the first book that I actually read all the way through from you was, you know, One Gospel for All Nations. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it wasn't an, it wasn't an easy read, but, um, but some of the, the way you had condensed some of the key questions down to, to sort of get down to a, a core gospel that is relevant to people from, you know, any ethnicity or culture or whatever, um, go, go a little bit, for me, if you would, and to like you, you use those, you sort of consolidated it down during the um, uh, sort of trying to understand the interpretation phase, the, those questions, who is the creator? What has the creator king done? You know, why is he important? And, and how do we, how should we respond? How, what, what brought you to that, to be able to consolidate it down into that? Yeah, I initially didn't want to write that book. Uh, I wanted to write some other book, but I felt like it was necessary to begin a, a constructive conversation for how do we reconcile this issue of the fact that there's one gospel, but yet it's meant to be meaningful for all nations? And in other words, how do we do biblically faithful, culturally meaningful contextualization? Uh, I feel like we, we needed to, to move the evangelical conversation along to pr more practical how-tos and models and not just principles. So as I started looking through thinking, okay, well, what is this one gospel? And I wanted to start off exegetically rather than merely confessionally. Um, and so I was, I started observing that every place where the gospel is explicitly mentioned, Hebrew, Greek, uh, whatnot, it always uses at least one of three themes. 
uh, creation, covenant, or king and kingdom. And I found that without exception. And I was just kind of stunned by that because that's just not typically what you hear in any sort of gospel presentation, you know, like a gospel track that is, it's more of, you know, God, God loves you, your son, Jesus died for you, you can go to heaven, you know, something of that nature. But you just don't find that direct presentation anywhere in scripture. Um, that, that clearly, you know, just like that. And, and especially when I looked at Galatians 3, 8, where it even said that the Abrahamic covenant was equivalent to the gospel. You know, Paul said that. And I thought, oh man, that you, most people, including me, cannot, you know, or cannot just immediately go, well, obviously the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. We might say it's the background for the gospel, but we wouldn't say it is the gospel. And so I thought, we've, we really got to do some work on this. So I, I started looking, you know, at those three themes. I call them framework themes. It's what those major themes that frame. And then everything else, every other theme that's kind of related to the gospel, I call an explanation theme. Uh, it helps basically help us understand the significance of the gospel. But they have their meaning, those concepts, whether it be the name Christ, the phrase Son of God, atonement, uh, justification, whatever it may be. They have their meaning significance in that biblical context, not our cultural context. So, for example, if we want to understand what the law is, we need to understand it within the biblical context, not our understanding of law. Um, and so uh, that 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 gave me the the kind of mental paradigm to see how the gospel could be both firm and flexible. That is the gospel presentations. So there's this firm aspect that hasn't changed the framework themes, but you have flexibility to emphasize certain explanation themes. So, so tell me, tell me a bit about the story behind the story of Romans of writing your, your latest book, Romans, uh, reading Romans through Eastern eyes. And then, and you know, how that, how that is uh, the impact it's had and, and, you know, and then try to, we'll try to transition it into, you know, practical, what, what does it mean for the average person that, that may be navigating in that realm? Sure. That book has been in my heart for years. Um, I, I, I really want people to see that this honor shame conversation is not merely an anthropological, social conversation, but it's rooted in scripture itself. And so, uh, and so uh, I start, I see honor, shame used all throughout the Bible, but I found this interesting tension that people would be willing to grant you that honor and shame are say in Habakkuk or Micah, you know, but people you know, would tend to return back to Romans and Galatians and, you know, and talk about the law and the legal themes. And, but as I was studying through Romans, I was seeing a lot of honor, shame language, very explicit language. And so I said, all right, if I can make the argument that honor and shame are significant for a book like Romans, which is, you know, a thoroughly legal you know, in its, you know, reputation. Well, then I've made the argument across the board for people because uh, they realize, well, if it's there, then I'm probably going to be more open to seeing it other places as well because the, they assume that Romans is, is law, 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 legal, 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 legal. You know, honor, shame doesn't have a place. And especially because people tend to see the Bible is about guilt but honor and shame merely about 
you know, sociology or missions or something outside the Bible. People tend to make that kind of dichotomy. So those were some of the things that were motivating me in writing the book, because I want us to get our understanding and our use of honor and shame and our perspective of honor and shame from scripture and, um, and help people to see it in the Bible. And so that, that's uh, what moved me to write the book as I saw all these various insights that you could gain uh, from reading it. And it's, it's had a very positive reception. Um, it's not meant to be a commentary. It's really just meant to highlight certain things that we may tend to overlook uh, or not emphasize as much. And, and I, I think it may actually even help us and maybe some longstanding theological debates, you know, maybe reconcile some ideas or maybe get a little more insight into questions that, you know, theologians have debated for a while. Now, as you were writing that, or even maybe, I guess, previous to writing that book, because you, you said that, you know, you just really felt like you needed to write it. Um, were there some discussions that you had with, you know, with other missionaries and other Westerners that sort of push you over the edge to go ahead and write it? Um, any, any of those kind of like pushback to the ideas that actually pushed you to actually move forward with it and really expound on it? More than pushing me to write it, it was a, uh, I, ha I had a conversation with Andy Crouch, the former editor at Christianity Today, actually having, uh, he urged me to hold off in writing it. Um, because, and so instead I wrote One Gospel for All Nations. Okay. Why did he want you to hold off on writing it? Because he knew that I was early in my uh, publishing and writing. And he said, you need to write something initially that a broad audience can agree with. That you're not going to step into some, you know, theological, you know, bombs or, you know, traps and heavy debates, you know, right away, you know, um, you know, like, basically keep developing your thoughts and get some credibility and, and, you know, he'll maybe listen, be willing to listen to you on the, the mission stuff early on. And then, and then maybe they'll be ready to, to once honor shame is kind of got on people's mental radar, then maybe they'll be ready for that book. And so that was wise counsel. Uh, so I wrote one gospel for all nations. And uh, I think it's helpful for people to know, well, what kind of a, how does this person treat the text? Um, is this person care to be careful? And so that way, when you start saying something that's a little, a little different and people start wondering, is this guy, is he, is he uh, speaking truth? They go, well, I know he really values exegesis and theology. So I want to hear him out, even if it sounds different at first. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was in the right timing. It looks like then, right? Andy Crouch is, as you said, his uh, counsel was wisdom. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and absolutely. how, and how have things gone now since the books come out? I know you're, you know, you're one of the top books, uh, you know, referenced in Christianity today, but what's been personally, what's been the interaction with, with, um, you know, the body of Christ since it's come out? I have just been floored. Uh, I, I mean, it just, it just feels, I, I really feel speechless because this has been such a burden on my heart for so many years. And, and you, you see it and, and people, you know, at first going, you're kind of crazy. You're forcing stuff into the text or, um, or what you, you have a lot of is you have theologian types who don't read missiology, you have missionaries who don't read a lot of theology. And so it's no matter who I talk to, 
they had some kind of objection and concern. <laughs> and, and, but I kept, I kept saying, but this is biblical. This is, we got to take this seriously. And so to see people digging in and going, yeah, yeah, we see this too. It just really does uh, touch my heart. And um, I am so excited about what, where people can take this, uh, what insights they are going to have and from other books and what applications they're going to draw out of it. Because, you know, I know that my work is just, just a catalyst, just a, a beginning. And, uh, and so I'm really excited to see what people do with it. And, and it has been, it has, has been well received and I'm really grateful for that. Tell me a, a bit about the, um, the, the honor shame conference. Tell uh, tell our listeners about that conference. I know this is the what is this the second? Well, it's under the umbrella of it. It's it's the second actual one, but there was one on patronage last year. Yep, um, the Honor Shame conference started in 2017, and the two biggest goals of the conference were two or three biggest goals. One, we wanted to normalize the Honor Shame conversation. Uh, two, we wanted to you know, educate and equip people to think through honor shame issues with respect to their ministry and, and to the Bible. And then three, we wanted to help network people uh, together so that people can think through the implications for their work and their ministry. And the 2017 conference was amazing. It was, it was almost 300 people. Um, I think it was just shy of that, maybe 290 the feedback forms, we had 90% feedback, which is huge. Um, uh, and then it was overwhelmingly positive. Um, and so, um, but we didn't want to just kind of create another conference because that's not our goal is to do that. And so uh, we decided to wait, wait until, and then we felt like, okay, we're going to do it again this year. So in June 8th through the 10th, we're going to have the second Honor Shame Conference. And uh, this is... Uh, I really, I'm excited because when you look at the workshop presenters, uh, we have an amazing um, line of people, plenaries and workshops that uh, uh, my ambition and dream has always been to help bridge and, and integrate the fields of missiology and theology. And that's exactly the way this conference is shaped up so that people in both communities or, uh, and spheres can interact and help each other think through the implications for their work and their ministry. So, um, um, so that's what we got coming up. We have a uh, John Barclay, who is arguably, you know, after N.T. Wright, maybe the most influential New Testament scholars on the planet. Uh, we, we have we have Jason Jibb doing a workshop and Jay Gupta. I mean, it's just it's just a who's who in the workshops. It's really great, and I um, I. Tackle the topic of what does it mean for Christ to bear uh, bear our shame. Uh, so that's the talk I'm going to give. Everybody for years, people have been asking about the, the relationship between honor, shame, and atonement. And so um, this is one I'm going to, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, dig into that a little bit. So uh, I'm writing a book on the topic right now and. This will be one of the very first times I, I, I speak on it a little bit more directly. Yeah, and and you know, and that's again taking your uh, the earlier part of the conversation, your your view on the Chinese way of the middle way, and it being both and and not always either or. I mean, even in your writings, your references to N.T. Wright and sort of the the new perspective on on 
Paul and, you know, then the traditional perspective and sort of the, 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 your recognition that there's value in, in, in a lot of what N.T. Wright is saying, what he surfaced about the atonement, but not fully buying into that whole side and then keeping the balance with the other side. It's just, you've walked a tightrope there that very few guys have walked. And I know you take some, you know, some flack for that. And, and I, and I appreciate your, uh, I appreciate the way you've been responding to that. So. Well, well, good. I, I just want there to, uh, not only do I want there to be unity in the church, I want us to have a sense of humility to really understand uh, the people we may disagree with, because I have found so often one side misrepresents the other and not because I think they're trying to, but they just have not dived in enough or they haven't listened long enough. And I've talked to numerous people who they'll say something about, let's say I'm talking about, they'll say, oh, the new perspective, you have to be careful of that. And I'll say, well, have you read such and such or, you know, this person or that person? I say, well, no, but I've heard a lot about them. You know, I mean, I've had that conversation so many times. Uh, and, but when I was doing a lot of my dissertation research, I had to do a lot of reading into justification and whatnot. And I really, I would listen to one person talk or read a book. And then two hours later, I would hear the other side directly contradict what they supposedly believe. <laughs> you know, they maybe one side says, oh, well, they don't believe in, in, in a, a topic A. Well, I, a few hours later, I read that person says, I believe in topic A, you know, whatever the idea is. <laughs> and it, it was almost comical, but it was more sad than anything. Well, hey, before we uh, before we close this out, so tell me now you're relocated. Um, you're sort of going through the whole reentry thing back to life in America. Give me a little window into how that's going with you and your family and so forth. Well, it's um, we obviously didn't have this on our radar, but various security concerns and family needs and whatnot caused us to start rethinking our future plans. So yes, we have relocated to the states. And uh, there is a lot of reverse culture shock for sure. And, and so, but it's getting better and better. I'm, I feel really blessed that a mission agency, their name is Mission One. They heard that we were processing a transition and they said, hey, why don't you work with us? We want you to um, develop tools for contextualization and honor shame. We would love for you to adjunct teach at places, develop curriculum. Uh, even write books, and I'm like, I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> and and they really have a vision for if the church needs something, let's make that happen. And so they brought me in to be the theologian in residence, and uh, I've, I've just been really, really grateful. Nice, that's awesome. Very cool. All right, so two more quick questions. One, do you have a, a book in the works right now? Yes, I am in the middle of working on a book. Uh, about the atonement, where uh, in, it helps to uh, using the what I would argue is the biblical logic of atonement. Um, it really helps reconcile the various theories uh, of atonement, but at the same time, it helped I think a whole lot of honor shame dynamics to the atonement and sacrifice pop out. So it's it's integrative as most other books are. And that on the one side, I'm trying to make contribution to biblical studies, biblical theology. But on the other side, I'm trying to show when we see the atonement rightly, we actually have all of these various ways in which we can contextualize the message 
of the cross. So it's really meant for both audiences. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. How, how far out is that, do you think? I will probably be finished uh, totally writing it uh, by the by the summer or, or, you know, sometime in the summer. And then it's just a matter of how much publication time, you know, it takes from there. And hey, I want to I want to throw a curveball at you as the last question. I want to start adding this into the interviews that we do uh, as part of our podcast. What is what what what, what scripture or what scriptural nugget has God really been driving home and that's resonating with you, you know, in the last week or two? By way of a book, I'll talk about the text. I've been reading a, a fourth a early edition of Tully Lau's upcoming book called Defending Shame, where he talks about Paul's use of shame in his letters. And I have been awestruck at the way in which Paul uses shame to bring about character transformation and sharpen the conscience. And because, you know, so much of people study who do PhDs, a lot of times they're, they're, they're chasing personal questions they have, you know, and I've always struggled with this honor shame issue in my own heart, my own life. And so to get into Paul's letters and to see this healthy way of allowing shame to shape your conscience and your heart, that's not, the stereotypical destructive way, you know, where you know, you're just worthless and bad and terrible. That's been really, really challenging and edifying. Um, so that'd be, that'd be the, I guess the short answer. Yeah. It's funny. Cause uh, in the, in the, uh, I'm, I'm serving as an interim pastor of a local church, Asian congregation here in the San Diego area. And a little, a little while ago, I taught, you know, Philemon with some people are not so Philemon, others Philemon and just the whole yeah, Paul's use of honor, shame language, and and even in a sense, you know, using shame as a tool to get uh, Philemon to do what you know Paul thinks he ought to do with Onesimus. So fascinating mm. stuff. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's it's integrative, like reintegrative. It's not you know destructive. Exactly, reintegrative. Yeah, great term. Thanks for listening to facilitating the mission. We consider it a privilege to have you spend time with us. If you found today's podcast helpful, please leave a review on the podcast platform where you heard us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Search at Shep Staff on any of these platforms. That's S-H-E-P-S-S-T-A-F-F. -F.